Imagine, if you will, sort of a blasted hellscape on Earth. A place, you know, and, and I could quote Lord of the Rings here. A place where the very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Poison toxin. Uh, a town so horrifically mismanaged that it became part of the inspiration for the Silent Hill movie, a renowned horror film. Horror films and video game line, absolutely. We're going to talk about Centralia, Pennsylvania. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now, I might add, uh, abandoned ghost towns, they are all around us, um, not only just here in the United States, but of course overseas. This is kind of a subsection that Bill and I talked about. Uh, this is maybe our first in a long line of features of specialized ghost towns or abandoned towns. So Centralia, Pennsylvania was known as a coal mining town. Uh, coal deposits began being mined there in 1856. The first two mines were Locust Run and Coal Ridge mines. And then later came Hazeldell in 1860, Centralia Mine in 1862, and the Continental Mine in 1863. In its heyday, Centralia was quite a quite a town. It had it had saloons, hotels. You know, had a had a booming population. You know, back in the days when coal mining was going to make a lot of money for a person, this was a place to be. There was coal everywhere to be dug out of the ground around Centralia, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I had in its prime. It had two Catholic schools, seven churches, five hotels, twenty-seven saloons, two theaters, a bank, and a post office with uh, yeah, close to twenty-five hundred uh, people. So what what happens to a town to bring its population down to just five people by the year twenty seventeen? Well. That's what we're here to talk about. It's funny you should ask. On May 7th, 1962, the Centralia City Council met to discuss how to clean up the Centralia landfill. Now, the Centralia landfill itself was a 300-foot-wide, 75-foot-long pit made up of a 50-foot-deep strip mine that had been uh, cleared in 1935. And they wanted to, to clean up their town. They wanted it to look nice. Now, I... if memory serves me correctly, I think this was right next to the big city cemetery and it was close to Memorial. They were Memorial Day and they were thinking about trying to get it cleaned up, not to be an eyesore for yeah, the yeah. festivities. Yeah, the idea was to clean up the town and help things look good and they wanted to make it look nice. Okay. Now, uh, that was 1962. In 1956, Pennsylvania State had passed laws to regulate the landfill usage of strip mines. There were certain hazards associated with using strip mines as landfills. Uh, they were notoriously prone to fires. If you were going to use a strip mine as a landfill, it required a permit and regular inspection. Gotcha. So George Segaritus, which I may have that name wrong, a regional inspector, he became concerned when he noticed that there were holes in the walls and the floor of the strip mine, cutting through to older mines underneath. These were reasons for concern to him. 
So he informed a, a city councilman that the pit would be required to be filled with an incombustible material. They had to fill it in with something that would not burn. Obviously, there was concern that, that if something happened and the pit caught on fire, it could potentially spread to the mines underneath. Right, right. So the city council arranged for the cleanup of the mine. Again, May 7th, 1962, they decide they're going to clean it up and they wanna, they're want they trying to figure out what to do. The results of that particular city council meeting are kind of shrouded in mystery, if you will. They did not properly describe anywhere in their notes, their minutes, what they were going to do to clean up this mine. They just agreed that they were going to do it. It is assumed at this point in time, knowing what we know today, that they decided to clean up the landfill by setting it on fire. Yes, yes. Uh, That's which what my was research showed as well. Prohibited by state law. So the council picked a date, and mind you, the council picked a date. No one really knows what they had decided at this point, but the council picks a date and hires five members of the local volunteer fire department. Alrighty. Seems like maybe they plan on burning something. Yes. But they decide that these these guys are going to help them clean up the landfill. Well, whatever decision was made, the Centralia landfill was ignited on May 27th, 1962. Apparently, they decided they were going to burn that trash. And and a little cat out of the bag, it's still burning today. Yeah. Spoiler alert. 60 years later, it's still burning today. Um. But they said the, the land fell on fire. They used water hoses to douse any flames that were visible that night. Uh, like, like we said, they wanted to clean up their town. They wanted to try to make things look better. Uh, flames were again seen on the night of May 29th. So they called the same guys back. They showed up with their fire hoses. They again put hey, out the hey, fire. Hey, you missed a spot. Yeah. <laughs> you missed a spot. Uh, the following week, the week of June 4th, there was another flare-up. So they called these guys again. They show up with their hoses. They put it out. Yeah, hey, you missed another spot. Missed another spot. Hard to find good help. <laughs> a few days later, a hole 15 feet wide and several feet high was found in the base of the north wall of the pit. Garbage had covered this hole. They didn't know it was there. Uh, and it also prevented it from being filled in with, uh, you know, prior to their, their setting it on fire. And in quotes, it's possible that this hole led to the coal mines below the town. You think? Uh, it obviously provided a pathway to the maze of old mines that exist under Centralia, Pennsylvania. Again, like I said, we mentioned uh, five known coal mines in the area. Um, yeah. The place is, it's just riddled with coal mines all over the place. And this hole provided an entry point for the fire right into those coal mines. And I believe I ran across, there's actually another uh, area. I won't say there's a town, and that's the big difference, uh, where a mine is still on fire besides Centralia. But it didn't have the effect because there wasn't a town directly on yeah. it. It's just more, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. Well, as, as again, as we get a little further, you're going to find out that this this decision didn't just affect Centralia either. Yeah, there, there, there's the trickle down effect. Yeah. So the ca- council member, one of the council members, contacted the president of the Independent Miners Union. He brought him in. He, he came in. He inspected the situation, and he he in turn called an engineer. Obviously, they've got a problem. They want to figure this this out. So the engineer looked at the open pit, and at this point in time, they don't know beyond just the burning landfill if there's anything else going on. So the engineer says, I'm going to dig out that smoldering crater for you. I'm going to use a steam shovel and charge you 175 bucks. That's okay. pretty reasonable. Okay. 
Mine inspector Art Joyce arrives at about the same time, and using gas detection equipment, he goes to that hole in the north wall of the landfill. He detects carbon monoxide coming from the large hole and cracks in the north wall, and he detects them at levels that he considers typical of a coal mine fire. So he's the first guy that figures maybe there's a fire burning there underneath this There may be a little town. bit more to this. Yeah. So the city council sends a letter to the Lehigh Valley Coal Company as a formal notice of the fire at this point in time. Um, they did not reveal the true origin of the fire, of course. They described the fire as starting of an unknown origin during a period of unusually hot weather. And the old spontaneous combustion chestnut, that happens all the time. Yeah. Coal mines just randomly catch fire just for no poof. reason. Obviously, they would have been on the hook right. if they had admitted how it really happened. So they kind of, again, the poorly managed, I mean, just, you know, the the machinations of the American political machine here. To me, um, and I, I, I've, I've been witness to this, I think most of us can say, at the time frame especially, it was a small town trying to fix a problem as cheap as they possibly could, hoping no one would catch them and it'll all be over by tomorrow and no one will know the difference yeah. kind of rule. So um, the council was supposed to meet again on August 6th to discuss this situation. Uh, before then, Deputy Secretary of Mines James Schober, he announced that he expected that the state would uh, help finance the cost of digging out the fire. Because, again, at this point in time, the town isn't accepting any responsibility for what they've done. They expect that it would cost roughly $30,000 to get in there, dig it out, and, and put, put an end to this fire. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, 60 years ago, again, yeah. So at the, at the town council meeting, um, strip mine operator Alonzo Sanchez, he makes an offer. And what he's going to do, he's going to dig out the mine fire for free. He's not going to charge him a dime, but he gets to claim any coal he finds without paying royalties to the companies that, that have claims to the coal in the area. Let me just say that would have been a heck of a deal. Oh, yeah. Well, and they flat out reject that. Yes. Everybody absolutely like, no, that's not going to happen. Not. So by this time, state inspectors are coming daily to, to do tests and, and check for lethal levels of carbon monoxide. On August 9th is the first time that they, de they detect what they would consider lethal levels of, of the carbon monoxide. And so they close all area mines the very next day. The area is considered unsafe at this point, and they know they've got a mine fire now. Now, I'm going to pause you there, just trying to tie back to the horror film flicks and the games of Silent Hill. Um, just as in the film, the air in Centralia is dangerous. It's not recommended that people be exposed to it. Uh, the environmental has long, you know, long periods of time. This is like apocalyptic looking stuff. Oh, if you can find pictures of it, the the roads are cracked oh, and, and bellowing up smoke and and the, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Now, while most people have started to kind of this register, you know, Houston, we may have a problem yeah. here. Um, they're clinging. I mean, these are families that have been raised here generations have passed well, yeah. on their houses you, you don't want to abandon everything you've ever known yeah this is your life and at the end of it a little spoiler alert one of the only remaining buildings is ironically a church who is still open for special services today uh it, again it's just very similar to silent hill this is exactly where that came from well and and you know, like we said we went from the heyday of you know, thousands of people living in Centralia down to five. 
And basically, as each of those people passes away, the government just steps in and seizes everything they have yeah. and, and condemns it. Yeah, they said they would wait for 20 or 30 houses, you know, maybe several blocks, and they just come in and just bulldoze it all down. Just So so you've got this mine fire raging underground. Uh, obviously, you've got toxic gases seeping from, from the earth. I mean, again, you, you've, you've turned this, this little town into just... Think Hell. what it's doing to well water and, yeah. you know, everything. So to try to solve their problem, uh, three different excavation projects were uh, attempted during 1962 and 63. They were all ineffective. They all stopped for various reasons. The first excavation, they started taking bids on August 17th, 1962. Two days later, they awarded a contract to Bridie Incorpor- Incorporated. And that is a company uh, from near Mount uh, Carmel. Uh, they awarded the contract for an estimated $20,000, and work began on August 22nd. Now, at this point in time, uh, the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries steps in, and they decide they're going to lead this project, and they say that Bridie is only going to need to excavate a total of 24,000 cubic yards of earth. Still a lot of earth. Yeah. Uh, they were, they told the company how deep they could dig. Uh, they were forbidden from doing any exploratory drilling to find out the extent of the fire. The <laughs> department of mines told them, this is where the fire is at. This is where you dig. Yeah, trust me on this. Yeah. We know what we're talking about. Uh, they couldn't, they couldn't find out the fire's perimeter. They couldn't drill down to find out the depth. They were strictly limited to what the, the department of mines was telling them. Uh, Kind of sounds like some management I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they were strictly required to follow the plans drawn up to them by the engineers for the Department of Mines. At this point in time, they did not believe the fire to be very big or very active. I don't think anybody did truly at yeah. this point. And and they were using the steam issuing from the landfill to to be their indicator. Of course, the landfill has this big open hole and cracks in the walls. The steam coming from the landfill is from that immediate area. But if the fire, of course, is spread, you know, they don't they don't have the evidence of that at this point. Right. Uh, this project was ineffective. The intentional breaching Surprise. of Yeah, the intentional breaching of the mine walls allowed oxygen to rush in. And what does fire need? Oof. Fire needs oxygen. Fuel the fire. So instead they uh, they just made the fire worse by knocking holes into the mines. Uh, this inrush of uh, oxygen helped the fire to move ahead of the boundaries they were working within. So even where their lines were drawn, the fire moved past that. Uh, they were and part of the other problem is they were only allowed to work what we would call day shift mm-hmm. during the day. They were not allowed to work weekends or holidays. So we were talking. We we're coming up on the Labor Day holiday. They were wanting to clean up their town. They were only allowed to work eight hours a day during the day. And work stopped for five days over the Labor Day holiday. Got to take time off. So you've got a fire that this fire doesn't care what time of day it may be or what's going on. You've just opened up some more oxygen yeah. to it. We fanned it. Okay, so, we're, we're walking away. We're taking five days off. So ultimately, this project ran out of money and was discontinued on October 29th of 1962. Um, now... I have a weird sense of humor here, so bear with <laughs> me. But uh, you, you heard me say, you know, Houston, we have a problem. A couple anecdotes of stories. The people start there in the town begin to grasp the tip of the iceberg. Uh, early in 1962, the then mayor, John Coddington, um, 
inserted a dipstick into one of his underground fuel tanks at a gas station that he yeah, owned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, he was just checking the fuel levels, as you do. Maybe you saw some of those, like, big eight-foot-long stick you stick down, and you're checking the depths. But when he pulls it up, he notices the gas is steaming on the stick, and it's extremely hot. Yeah, it's well over 100 degrees. So he, he, he pulls that out and puts a... Uh, thermometer on it and drops that down and sure enough the gasoline is at 172 degrees now 185 is boiling for gasoline so 172 to 185 um another one and and this was years later even in 1981 um this has gone on now for a decade or more there was a 12 year old boy uh playing in the back of his grandmother's yard i believe his name was todd dumb Dumboski. Dumboski. Um, and he was playing in the backyard with his cousin, and all of a sudden the ground just opens up and swallows him into a sinkhole. The sinkhole is approximately four feet wide and 150 foot deep. And this, this kid is saved by clinging to a tree a root. A tree root as billowing, boiling steam. steam is coming by. He had burn marks on his body, and thank goodness his cousin was there. I believe he was like 14, a yeah. couple of years older. And help drag him out to safety. It would have steamed him alive. Could you could you imagine? I mean, you're just out there playing, and then all of a sudden, what just happened? Poof! The entire ground opens up. <laughs> Crazy. So the day the first attempt to stop these mines runs out, October 29th, 1962, they go ahead and uh, they start in on their second attempt. Because you got to put this out. This is obviously dangerous, as you can see in the future. This is going to lead to people nearly yeah, losing this, their lives. This is getting worse. So October 29th, 62, they, a new project is proposed, and this time they're going to flush out the mine fire. They're going to they're gonna water. That seems to be a good solution to fire. I think we all agree. Yeah. So the estimated cost of this uh, project is $40,000. Uh, they open up the bids on November 1st, and eventually they award the project to K&H Excavating for $28,400, which is half. almost half. Yeah. Uh, but the plan is, of course, to take crushed rock, mix it with water, and then pump it into the mines. And they're going to fill up the mines, and they're they're going to choke out the fire. So they they did some drilling. Uh, they they can uh, they drilled holes uh, spaced about twenty feet apart throughout the area to try to you know figure out where they need to to, to dump this slurry. I guess and might be a good word. While necessary to do it, they're adding more oxygen. Yeah, to they're it punching more again. holes in it. Um, now this, this project was ineffective again for multiple reasons, Strike as you two. can see. They experienced unusually heavy snowfall for that time of year and unseasonably low temperatures. The low temperatures caused the weather lines to freeze and their rock mining machine, their rock grinding machine froze up during a blizzard. Wow. So the essential tools they need to complete this job are rendered useless by the weather. Uh, and in a... Like we said, the partially filled holes allowed the uh, the fire to escape. It gave an escape route to the fire to spread to other places. An additional $14,000 was approved for this project, and then the funding, funding ran out on March fifteenth, 1963, with a total of $42,400 spent trying to fill the mine with this, this I mean, concrete-like mixture. Sludge stuff, yeah. So... Now, at that point in time, they didn't really know where they were at. They thought maybe they had contained it as best they could. They didn't Hopeful. really know. Um, and then steam started to issue from different openings across the town on April 11th to indicate that the fire had spread. 
So now they know that it's it's definitely a much bigger problem than they than they thought even when they thought it was a big problem. Uh, the third project they 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 opened it up again. They tried to come up with some ideas. They came up with the three options, um, and and even tempting any of these options were was delayed until July first, nineteen sixty three. Option one uh, was was digging a trench around the fire area and then filling that trench with an incombustible material sort of create a fire break, if you will. Okay. Again, you have a fire burning underground. You put the break up above it. Yeah. Uh, option two, smaller trench, but with a with a bigger barrier. I'm not sure why they thought that would have been any better than option one. And then option three was a total and concerted flushing project larger than the second attempt. They were, I mean, step it up a notch. Yep. And all this was abandoned in 1963. They didn't have the money for it. They didn't have the resources. And at this point in time, I think they had realized that there wasn't going to be much they could do. Now, in your research, um, I know later on the government steps in. I believe that's in 1983. Yeah, it happens in the 80s. Relocation. But up to that, the government's not really helping a lot, it doesn't seem. Well, no, they don't really get too involved. And to be honest... Um, you know, based on a miscommunication, I, I was actually looking at some other abandoned towns, uh, sort of similar, you know, environmental disasters, if you will. And the government, even in those other cases, the government flat out lied about certain things. So the government, I, I mean, it's, it's like we said, it's, it's mismanaged. It's, you know, do you really want to force people out of their ancestral homes, this, this town they've yeah. lived in their whole lives? So I can kind of see, I mean, obviously they don't want to, you know, they don't want well, to create a panic. I'd come across some interviews with some of the townspeople, and, and I want to say this was late 60s. It may have been early 70s, like 1970, 71. But I found where in the interviews they were on TV and they were, you know, talking about it, everything. There was two designated areas. There was one area that the state or the coal company, whatever, deemed this area is safe. This area is the hot zone. It's, you know, not as safe. <laughs> and in that not as safe area, you mentioned that they had to come in with carbon monoxide testing crews like twice daily, I believe it was. Yeah, they were testing it regularly. So that uh, that started dividing the town because you had the ones that were in the quote unquote safe area and they're like, we're not moving. There's no, there's no threat. You know, there's no carbon monoxide popping up here where we're at. Yeah. And then you had the other ones that were more in the hot zone that they're like, we can't even live our normal life because like one of them, the daughter lived in the upstairs bedroom. And for whatever reason, the carbon monoxide was going upstairs and she was nausea and vomiting and, and going through all kinds of stuff. So they had to bring her downstairs and said, nobody can get any sleep because there's a knock on the door and these people come in with their gadgets and their suits and they're checking for carbon monoxide and they're in suits and they're saying, oh, no, Bill, <laughs> no, Eric, okay. you're fine. You're fine. Go back to sleep. It'll be okay. No, but by the 1980s, there were a lot of people in the area that were documenting adverse health conditions. Um, obviously, you had carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide leaking up from the mine fire below that was, was you know, those are detrimental, you know. Which caused migraines. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, hallucinogenics carbon, say, carbon, kind of things. Yeah, carbon monoxide is one of the things that. It'll kill you in your like, sleep. It'll cause, but yeah, it causes like hallucinations and things like that. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, you've got this fire burning. So there's depleted oxygen levels even. 
There so. was uh, an older lady. She was a, a senior citizen at the time, and I don't recall her name, um, but she was on a national news broadcast being interviewed, and she was one of those kind of trapped. Uh, she really wanted to leave, but she was living in her family ancestral home. Uh, it appeared that she was by herself, didn't have a husband or anything. And she had a sign that she made and hung out on her front porch and it said, mine fire hostage. (laughs) And she said that, you know, she goes to bed every night. She said, I truly don't know if I'm going to wake up in the morning or not, or if I'm going to be overtaken by the fumes. In your own home. That's horrible. This this town that you've grown up. Well, in 1984, Congress finally gets involved. Uh, They allocate $42 for relocation efforts uh, for the people of uh, Centralia. And and at some point in 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 during all this ensuing time, the fire extended to under the town of Burnsville, a few miles south. Appropriate and name, Burnsville. It's an unfortunately named town, and that entire town was abandoned and leveled. I mean, they just bought them all out and, and destroyed the whole place. But again, I'll stress this is right at twenty years after the fire's been going yeah, on. Now the later. government's going to step in. So, just a little bit of like kind of supplementary information here. We kind of covered how we got here and what happened and kind of what's going on. You know, like I said, in 2017, it was down to, what was it? Five, I think I said. Five people. Five people remaining in 2017. In 2002, the post office just suspended the zip code. Well, they even said, in, we're even done in with 1980, this. the population was over a thousand. So, but uh, the burning underground, it, it's burning at depths of up to 300 feet. They say it covers an eight-mile stretch that encompasses roughly 3,700 acres. And uh, based on current estimates, this fire is going to burn for over 250 years. Yeah, I saw those numbers, and it was like, how is this even possible? So in 1992, government claimed eminent domain. They moved in. They condemned the entire town. Like you said, the Postal Service discontinued the zip code for Centralia. State and local officials reached an agreement with the seven remaining residents on October 29th, 2013, and allowed them to live out their lives there. I mean, these are stubborn people. I'm going to tell you that right, right now. Yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, uh, after they pass, the rights to their houses are taken via eminent domain. And and they're knocked down, destroyed, reinforced. Some of the standing buildings are reinforced. And then I think you said after a certain number of, of houses in an area are yeah, abandoned, they, they knock would, them down. They basically... They, they did an interview with one of the gentlemen that decided to stay back. He's one of the, I guess, five or, or seven. And he's like, yeah, it's uh, we kind of take bets around here, the citizens. And he goes, we know each other quite well. Well, obviously, if there's only you know, yeah. five or seven. And he says they, uh, they'll they wait till there's like 20 or 30 houses. And they'll just come in, in in like two days and just demolish everything. And they're gone. It's like they were never there. So visually speaking... Uh, some of the early scenes of the 2006 film Silent Hill, which is based on the video game series, draws inspiration from Centralia, Pennsylvania. And really, if you look at the pictures online versus some of the early scenes of this movie, I mean, they're strikingly similar. Very. You've got the, the, the damaged, cracked you know, roadways and the steam coming up from the ground and just this eerie, abandoned town. Which um, I saw references to what they call Graffiti Road, and that was that main highway that yeah. went through there. Um, I guess, of course, obviously it had been kind of closed off, and the entire uh, highway had just been graffitied. I mean, you could not see any yeah. asphalt for several miles. And relatively recently, I want to say like 2018 maybe, they have come in and now just backfilled dirt to cover all of that up. They're yeah. slowly, it's just like, you know, nature... 
and the government's helping the nature kind of take back all of that. They've blocked the roads, uh, put up do not trespassing signs. Like I said, the church is still there. It's still open. Uh, however, there's you know no trespassing signs, and the guy that was there said they strictly enforce this. So yeah. do not you know try yeah, it's to. It's not a safe place to be. Not a not a good place. I did watch some video footage uh, taken of this year, 2020, and uh, a young man um, who wanted to take that journey to go travel. He had been there to Centralia about five years earlier. Um, ironically, right off the highway, he pulled the car off, maybe walked 20, 30 foot tops, and here's a billowing hole in the ground with the steam still coming out. And uh, he took one of the thermometer guns that's commonly used in ghost hunts, and he was trying to hold his hand close enough to get the hottest temperature he could register. And you could tell. I mean, he was struggling. His yeah. hand's sweating. He's like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't hold it anymore. But he had got up to like 290 degrees Man. coming up out of that steam pit. Um, crazy. Just, it seems like that's another planet. It is truly a horror story. I mean. So that's a good segue. I wanted to end with a quote from author David DeCoke uh, in his book, uh, unseen danger published in 1986 and this just kind of summarizes centralia this is uh like i said direct quote from him quote this is a world where no human could live hotter than the planet mercury its atmosphere is as poisonous as saturn's at the heart of the fire temperatures easily exceed a thousand degrees fahrenheit lethal clouds of carbon monoxide and other gases swirl through the rock chambers i mean we we took a took a little piece of America and and just turned it into the equivalent of an alien, a hostile alien planet. Yeah, just sacrificed it and walked away. And because of the horrific mismanagement of, of people who just didn't understand and didn't take the time to do things right. Taking those shortcuts. Well, we do hope that you've enjoyed uh, this edition of Abandoned Ghost Towns uh, with our feature on Centralia, Pennsylvania. We can't make these things up, folks. This is about as scary as it gets. And uh, reality is often more scary and horrific than anything the brain or mind can dream up. Thanks for joining. Hey, this is Eric, and I just wanted to give a little reach out and a plug to our first paying sponsor for Nightmares on the Lost Highway. That's our little family uh, toy and gaming shop here in Lebanon, Missouri, called Raven's Loft. If you happen to be in the central Missouri area, please check us out. We have two locations. First one is at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon. We've also branched out to a second location out at the Heartland Antique Mall, also here in Lebanon. You're going to find all kinds of vintage toys, Star Wars, Star Trek, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Mego, Universal Monsters, all types of gaming, board games, Magic the Gathering. So we would appreciate it if you'd uh, stop by. You can like our Facebook page. Uh, swing by and check us out. Thank you so much. I would like to thank uh, Alex Tudor, who has been helping us uh, a lot uh, with our endeavors on this podcast. You can call him our producer at this point, I think. Our producer, electronic recording technician. Uh, um, he's uh, the one that's setting up all the mics and the hardware in the background. And then Bill Weirs is going through taking his time to try to clean and edit this up and uh, give us the best possible version that we can present to you folks. want to thank everybody involved with that.